You never correct me on stage, please. All right, do it again. Good evening, Hope Church. No, when I do it right, you don't answer. So, good morning, evening, whatever you want to call it. Glad you're here. Uh, what an amazing time to be singing praises to the Lord. I was trying to rest my voice. I came into that into the service thing. I won't sing. I'll just save it all for preaching. But man, that those 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 words and that uh, that music bringing us to worship God in His throne room. I could not but help sing. So I hope that you are rejuvenated as we come to hear from the Lord's word. I also just want to uh, remind you uh, by way of announcement that in the next month or so, we're still sort of sorting out the time, but there's going to be a baptism service. Uh, there's one candidate who's going to be coming full for baptism, but if you have not been uh, legitimately baptized since you've been saved, either you were baptized as a kid or you were baptized uh, in a cult or you were baptized before you were actually born again, uh, none of those will be legitimate baptism. And so we invite you to come forward and uh, uh, talk to myself or Vic and uh, see whether or not uh, you're a valid candidate for baptism. So we'd love you to do that uh, uh, in, the next, uh, in the next few weeks because we want to have everything ready for the next uh, month or so when we have that service. So just a, just a reminder about that. God, by His Spirit, loves to save people. Uh, and, and so I'm just going to pray again because uh, we're, we're coming into the time of the Word and I want uh, God's Word to, to, to settle into our hearts and us to be uh, as, even as James prayed, that we would be switched on tonight and, and, and dealing with God in a real way. And we're not just going through the motions, we're not just singing the words and then listening to some passage, but we're, we're dealing with the Lord God, our Creator and Redeemer. So let's pray. Father God, what we aim to do tonight is entirely humanly impossible. We seek to glorify Jesus and understand His Word and seek to live it out uh, in our lives, and we want to be more like you. We want to kill the sin that is still resident in our flesh. We want to see souls saved, uh, and none of this, Lord, none of this is done by human effort, uh, prestige, uh, uh, or anything that we can do or muster up. We, we do rely wholly on your Spirit, but we thank you, and we rejoice in the promise that, that your Spirit is given to your church, that, you, that, that though Christ is reigning from his throne in heaven, uh, he is resident here among us, mediated by the presence of His Spirit. So, Spirit, would you please give to us the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that is ours by faith. May you multiply us, grow us, and encourage us as we come to learn from your Word. And everybody said, Amen. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I invite you to turn there in your Bible so that you've got it open. And uh, 1 Corinthians, we'll remind ourselves, was an early epistle from uh, from Paul. He was... Uh, uh, writing it probably about 54 AD, which if you know your New Testament chronology, that's pretty early on. Uh, and, and he established the Corinthian church on his second missionary journey. Uh, he went through and established those in Turkey, uh, went back and, and then went into Greece and Macedonia, went down through Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and landed in Corinth for 18 months where he stayed as a resident preacher and teacher before he was called away. And in his leaving, he was asked more questions via letter, and he received some complaints via uh, uh, Phoebe and her people. Uh, and so, uh, sorry, Chloe and her people. And so we've got this whole book of just Pastor Paul dealing with the mess. But today, he's gonna, this is going to be, uh, really what he says is very brief, and what he means is even briefer. Uh, however, it's, it's sort of caught right in the middle of this whole big discussion we've been having around... I'm single, should I marry? I'm married, should I be single? Uh, I'm, I'm divorced, should I remarry? I'm widowed, should I remarry? In this whole discussion in 1 Corinthians 7 about marriage, you read this section 
and think there was a scribal error, there was a, a, a copying mistake, it's out of place, this is supposed to be in some other chapter. But in fact, what we're going to see is that the principles he talks about can be dealt with on their own right, and we'll do that tonight, but do find their, their context in the broader subject of whether or not I should marry, whether or not I should remain single. And the principles are this. Really, the question coming through, you'll see it in verse 17 here. Uh, chapter 7, verse 17. Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So, so there was a question coming up, uh, which was in the background with marriage and singleness and all of that. And the question was, what is the Christian life to live? What's the Christian employment to have? What's the Christian position in society? What's the Christian marriage status? Like, what? now that I'm a, a Christian, what's, which one am I supposed to fall into? Which pigeonhole do I need to find myself to be the truest and best Christian? Paul's answer is that a change in status, a change in income, a change in job, a, a change in political identity, none of that is necessary to be a Christian. Uh, in fact, to be, uh, to be a Christian, all that is necessary is faith alone in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That full stop right there, add nothing else. And yet, we can also ask, but, but how do I live a more, the most effective Christian life? And again, Paul's answer in verse 17 is not, well, if you, uh, uh, there will be some poverty-minded people, the poverty theology, and say, well, the poorer you are, the less money you touch, the less influence you have in society, that's the good Christian thing to do. Don't touch any of it. It's all Satan money. We just need to be poor beggars and, you know, don't, don't touch money. And then you've got the prosperity theology guys. We'll say, no, 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 Christians are supposed to be rich and wealthy and, and lapping it up in luxury. And, and so let's, let's find tonight a bit of, bit of a balance. Paul is saying in verse 17, the best way to live as a Christian is not in any particular point of society, but as God has called you. What defines a faithful Christian life? I, I think you're like me, that when you die, you want to look into the eyes of Jesus and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. That, that's the, the heart cry of every Christian. And so the question is, how do I live so as to hear that? And Paul's answer is, live as God has called you which of course leaves it entirely open-ended. There's some rules we'll cover, but basically where you are when you've been saved, you do not need to change your status or employment or position or marriage status in order to be a real true Christian. But we'll see that the, so, so number one, changing your status is not necessary. And we'll see the second principle, that changing your status is not prohibited in a complete sense. So let's read the rest of the passage and we'll go back and make Plenty of comment on it. Reads like this. Uh, going on from verse 18. So, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Well, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called or a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. 
You were bought with a price. Do not become the bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. May God bless the reading and explanation and application and obedience to his written, perfect, inerrant word this evening. Let's just go back to, to verse 18, around about there. There's, well, we're going to see here that, that the scope of the Christian, uh, uh, sorry, that the, the message of Paul is live as you were called. Whatever position you were in, whatever job you had, whatever family you've got, whatever wife, husband you've got, when you were saved, remain as you are. That's, your, that's Paul's general principle. Now, of course, the scope here is limited. He's not, that it, this does not include sinful occupations and sinful lifestyles or sinful marriages like polygamy. He's not saying remain in them, there's no issue. He's rather just saying, in as much as you are not sinning, because you'll reiterate down below, obeying the commandments of God matters. But he's saying, whatever situation you were in, you can remain in it uh, uh, because uh, uh, therein God has called you. We're going to look at a couple, of, a couple of theological underpinnings here. We're going to look at the fact that the sovereignty of God assigns our position in which we were called. We're going to look at the fact that uh, the, God's election comes across a, a universal spectrum of sinners. And we're going to look at the fact that our, voc- our, our, our position when we are called becomes a calling for us to live out. And we'll look at a few other things a bit later on. But you can imagine... Uh, you know, big surprise, people twist scripture. Uh, this is one verse and a couple of verses here that uh, is often taken to influence uh, and teach and spread the idea of crypto-Christianity. I wonder if you've heard of it. Uh, basically, they teach uh, that in places like North Korea, in places like Iran or other uh, uh, highly uh, uh, persecuting nations, that missionaries are taught, go in, make converts, but apply this principle. Tell them that they can remain as they are when they are called. If they are a a Muslim, and this is one of the big movements at the moment, Christo-Christianity among the Muslim world, you go in, you make converts, but hang on. If they stop going uh, to the mosque, if they start outwardly expressing faith in Jesus Christ, who is God, rather than just a prophet, they'll be beheaded. Let's not rush to have our churches painted red quickly. Let's keep them secret. Let's uh, uh, keep them back from immediate persecution and execution and allow them to apply this principle. Remain as they are, as they were called. So keep on going to mosque and keep on worshiping Allah and keep on doing all that you previously did, but in your own heart, do it to Jesus. Be real sneaky like that and worship Jesus and they won't know that you're actually committing blasphemy in their mosque. And one of the principles here is, is, of course, what is true is that Christians are not bound to go and be as persecuted as you ought to be. Let's acknowledge that. You're allowed to flee persecution. Paul did it. Jesus did it. It's allowable. However, uh, in order to live in a hostile community uh, and, and escape persecution, you're going to have to make compromises. What we see in the New Testament is is fleeing the hostile situation or perishing within it if it's unavoidable. And so what we cannot apply, and what I just want to speak to then move on, is that this verse uh, and these passages does not mean that you're allowed to be a secret Christian in another religion, but secretly worshiping Jesus. Let's just throw that out. It's not biblical. It's not New Testament Christianity. uh, and, and I think there is a lot of misguided uh, teachers of the word around who, who teach this in mission uh, colleges. 
But let's move on, because I don't think we've got big advocates for that here. Uh, we, we see rather here that, <coughs> of course, in Paul's day and in Corinth, there was, there was people whose employments, whose vocations, had to be repented of. You had people getting saved from the, uh, uh, from the, 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 the cultic prostitute temple who, who usually worked there and made really good money. And Paul does not say, well, keep your job, just you know, tithe it and God sanctifies your job. Uh, no, there was obvious repentance needed there. We said also, of course, polygamy. Maybe people were slave traders that had to be repented of. Today we can make, of course, the application, things like um, uh, country music player or drug dealer or, uh, yeah, it's, it's a sin, uh, or, or abortion clinic staff or somebody who's wrongfully divorced needs to go back to their, um, uh, their spouse if at all possible. So, so, of course, the calling of Christ is a call to repentance. However, where specific commands are obeyed and specific things are repented of, Paul gives that freedom, remain in your job, remain in your vocation, remain in the situation you were of your marriage status, your job, and whatnot. So we see an example of this in the New Testament. We have uh, Levi the tax collector. Uh, he repented of his thieving and his wrongful tax collecting and left it behind for Jesus. We see uh, this potential example of the Philippian girl who, who had the demon cast out of her by Paul and then stopped telling people's fortunes. Uh, of course, that was repentance. We, we also see in, in the book of Acts uh, that large communities of Ephesians were coming together and burning all of their black magic books. There are some things that need to be carved out of the Christian life in order for our life to be called accurately Christian. And yet, the general rule is your current life, your job, your finance, your marriage status, your fame, your position in society is what God wants to use as you currently have it. So let's look at a bit of these theological underpinnings. Number one, the sovereignty of God in assigning our portion. The utter and absolute sovereignty of God in all things underpins one of Paul's convictions here. He's saying the reason that you can remain as you are, the reason you can stay in the household you're in, stay in the home that you have, stay with the wife that you have, stay with the job that you have, the reason that is possible, if you are not actively sitting in that, is because God's the one who called you, yes? God's the one who chose when he would save you and called you into Christ and converted you, filled you with his spirit. Well, he's also the God who assigned you a portion. According to Acts chapter 17, Paul says that according to him, we, in him we live, move, and have our being. He allots and assigns every nation rising and falling, the borders of nations, every single family, your job, your, whether you came from a pagan home and all the difficulties that that comes with in trying to live a Christian life now, or maybe you're in a, a, a quasi-fake uh, over-religious or under-applied uh, 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 under Christian home, and now you've been converted truly and you're trying to figure out how to live for Jesus in that? Or, or maybe you've come from a stable, blessed Christian home. We do not covet and we do not look with pride or, or uh, su superiority on others because our sovereign Father is the one who gave each person exactly according to what we were allotted. So, <clears throat> the sovereignty of God in all things gives to us an ability to have peace and, and, and refuse coveting, covet, covetousness, sorry, and coveting. 
So when you get saved and you see other people, let's just talk personally here. You, you get saved, maybe you're a high schooler, uh, and, and, and you get saved and you look around you and, and you see really stable families. Who, who, and you're, you're from this atheist family or this Buddhist family or this Muslim family. And, and here, here your parents are and your family are digging into your faith. And, and you look across the aisle and there's the stable Christian family who love each other. They sing Kumbaya. They know the Psalms by age two. And, and you have a, a sense of desire for that, which is good. But, but with that comes covetousness. Like, who are they to have what I don't have? What, what, who am I that I'm stuck in this situation? Maybe it's financial. Maybe you get saved as a trolley boy after a huge recession hits and you're, you're making like 15 bucks an hour uh, and, and, that's, and you're in your 40s, you want to be making more than that, but that's your life and, and you're stuck with it. Look at other people and, and they're young and they're hip and they're happening and they've got jobs and they've got income and they've got inheritance and you see people with homes bigger than yours and with cars bigger than yours. Maybe they had a Ferrari before they got saved and the Lord didn't put on their heart to sell it upon their salvation. They're still rolling into uh, church in, in, a, in a, a big red Ferrari on Sundays and, and there's that covetousness. Of course, it can go the other way. The, the opposite of covetousness being superiority and pride. Well, if we remember the sovereignty of God in all things, we will be able to kill the sin of covetousness. Thomas Boston wrote when he was commenting on the Tenth Commandment, which is, of course, do not covet. He said this, the best remedy to coveting is contentment. If we are content with our own, we shall not covet what is not our own. Contentment says, I have a promise of heaven and have just enough to meet my needs here on earth. I have enough. He who has enough, Thomas says, will not covet that which is another's. Believe the condition to be best, which God, by his sovereign providence, carves out to you. I'm going to read that again. Believe the condition to be best, which God, by his providence, carves out to you. To you. We said, what's the best way for me to be a Christian or what would have been the best life to possibly live on earth? The one God gave you. The family God gave you. The traumatic past from, from terrible spiritual abuse that God gave you. That's the past he wants you to have. God deals dark hands all to his glory. Boston goes on and he says, if he, if he God, had seen fit for us to have more, we would have had more. Perhaps he knows that we could not manage with more on our plate. It's hard to carry a full cup without spilling, and it's hard to carry a full bank account without sinning. Great estates may be traps. A boat can be overturned easily by having too much wind in the sail. And the believer whose estate is best, sorry, the, the believing that estate to be best, which God appoints to us, makes us content. And being contented, we shall not covet that which is another's. So we, we do not covet what is each other's. We acknowledge God and his sovereignty has saved us all in different positions, in different finances, in different jobs. And we glorify God for his manifest calling. God is sovereign. We rest in that. <clears throat> so that those who have more and, and those who have the, 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 the even in Paul's mindset, you can imagine there's, there's a type that you might be saved with. Maybe it's a political career. Maybe it's an international sporting career. Maybe you're in the music industry. 
I like country music. I'm just joking. So maybe even in the, the very nearly demonic country music career, and, and Christians will automatically look at that and go, I don't know. I mean, he's in entertainment. He's, uh, that just feels sinful, feels too worldly, feels too this or that. And we need to recognize if that person is able to uh, undertake their calling without sin, then praise be to God, they should remain in that and use that influence for Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but let's just keep on going. We also see one of the underpinning theological realities here, the universality and the wide spectrum of the election of God to salvation. So look at verse 18 with me. We, of course, believe that God is the one who chooses and elects those who will be saved from before the foundations of the world based on nothing that is seen in us. Simply because of his sovereign love, he chose whom he wanted to love eternally in Jesus Christ. We see in verse 18 that this call, this election, he elects people from different religious backgrounds, or, or we can use it sort of uh, more like Paul thinks of it. He, he might rather say that, that, that Jesus, uh, God has elected for Jesus to plunder multiple religion strongholds. That there is, of course, these demonic pagan religions all around the world. Uh, it wasn't pagan, but it was definitely demonic. The Jewish first century religion who opposed and murdered their Messiah. And, and, and God is saying that I've chosen through election people from each of those tables, from each of those religions. I've chosen some to come to me that I might have some of every basket. Because God's sovereign. He wants to glorify himself as sovereign, more powerful over all of these other demonic religions. Well, Paul sort of hints at that in verse 18 when he says, was anyone at the time of his call, of course, the call there is the call to Christ, our conversion, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? In other words, you were either raised in the Jewish household or you were converted at some point into being a, a proselyte Jew, and so you had taken on the covenant sign of circumcision. Or was anyone at the time uh, of his call, uncircumcised. And the commandments to each is, don't remove the marks of circumcision and don't seek circumcision. Uh, there was actually a bit of a movement in, in, the, in the, the, the Jewish time that because they wrestled and did all of their Olympics naked, the Jews, yeah, get that image in your head, because they're doing their Olympics naked, the Jews who wanted to assimilate into society and take part in Olympics were, were, were shamed and persecuted for being circumcised. You, you can tell. And, and so the, the Greeks would make fun of them, and the Jews actually had devised a process to remove the marks of it, make it all, you know, look, reverse it all. Don't, don't even want to know how they did that. But that's what they did. And, and so maybe even in the first century, what had happened is that Jews or maybe converted to Judaism, some, some men had, had realized that circumcision is not important. I don't need that to be a Christian. In fact, maybe being a Christian, right? They read Galatians. They read how, how unnecessary it is. So they started reversing things or, or being tempted to do so. And Paul's saying, just, just stop. Whether, whether you were raised Jewish, converted Jewish, whether you were raised Gentile and stayed Gentile, where you were when you were converted is precisely where God had sovereignly chosen that you be. And he had elected for himself some Gentiles who were plenty pagan and some Jews who had denied their Messiah. So, so, so we, we realize that no matter your religious background, right, maybe a Christian cult, 
maybe Catholicism, maybe uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or, or something else, or, or maybe you were Muslim or Buddhist or New Age. Wherever you were when you were called, Jesus has called you to the same table to level ground at the foot of the cross. So we don't look back, uh, look on others or on ourselves as being any kind of second-rate Christians because we didn't grow up in a Christian home. My family isn't here with me in the pews. We recognize that Jesus has saved for himself elect from right across the, the religious spectrum. So our London Baptist Confession of Faith says in chapter 3, verse 5, God chose those human beings who are predestined to life before the foundation of the world in accordance with his eternal and immutable, meaning unchangeable, purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. God chose them in Christ for eternal glory solely out of his free grace and love without anything in the creature as a condition or cause for moving him to choose them. So that none of us have, have pride for being that, that kid who was raised Christian and kept the faith. And none of us have maybe even pride on the other side because we've got this awesome conversion testimony of, of how drastically my life changed. We, we simply celebrate the universal atoning blood of Jesus Christ, whether we have been coming from the Jewish or the Gentile background. And that was especially a conversation raging, a huge debate in the first century. You can read Galatians, you can read Acts 15, and you see one of the big questions was, do the Gentiles, in order to receive the salvation that came from the Jews, do they need to become a little bit Jewish through circumcision or through keeping certain laws in order to receive Christ? And the cry that came out from Paul, as we read, reiterated here, is that there is no preliminary door into Jesus Christ. There is only Jesus Christ. When you offer salvation to your friends and you invite them to church and you preach Christ in the workplace, we offer no primary, secondary, tertiary door of application to sinners in their life of sin. We just offer Jesus Christ. Unabated, unmediated, unmitigated. It's, he's there for them in complete and free salvation. And so Paul says that your religious position your status of circumcision means nothing. He says, verse 19, circumcision or uncircumcision counts for nothing but keeping the commandments of God. So again, he reiterates, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. <clears throat> so you don't need to be concerned about your background. Simply, are you right now? Are you now made one with Christ by faith. Don't put any trust on your background. Don't think it takes away from your salvation. Simply ask yourself, have you been made one with Christ by looking to his uh, atonement on the cross, his bearing the wrath of God, and his triumphal resurrection to new life? Have you been made one with him by trusting that by faith alone? If you have, then we are all one around the same table. But then what we need to realize is that that position you've been called in. So this has all just been sort of pushing back. We're going, don't change because it doesn't matter. God's sovereign. You are where he wants you to be. He's elected all types of people. So don't worry where you're starting from. But then the question becomes, since you have repented, since you have come into Christ, what have you been called to? 
Looking forward, what do we see ourselves as called to do from this starting place? Maybe, again, politician, athlete, trolley boy, nurse, teacher, wherever you're at, what do you look forward to do for Jesus Christ? And of course, we need to have these three uh, words, terms, thoughts in our mind. I want to talk to us about vocation, opportunity, and mission. Vocation, you know that word, vocal, just means calling. Your calling, your vocation, and then your opportunity and your mission. So, of course, we've established that God finds us as we are, saves your soul without any charge, uh, sorry, without any change on the outside. You didn't have to quit a job. You didn't have to change anything in order to become a Christian. But now that you are in Christ, you need to walk in a certain lifestyle. And then where you are, precisely as you are in your job, your marriage status, your whatever it be, you need to realize that God is calling you to utilize the opportunity you have to engage in the mission of God. So calling, opportunity, and mission. Let's sort of jump through those. Each one of us, having been converted, are put on mission for Jesus. So we are all given the Great Commission that is the call to use your life in everything you've been given, to bring, this, uh, bring lost people to meet Jesus and then bring converts through the process of discipleship so that we see this world riddled with local churches and that those who have been baptized and taught ought to do the same thing, be saving souls through preaching the gospel. But we're all going to be doing that in a different way. So then we secondly need to realize that each one of us can look around and see opportunities to reach certain people, reach certain parts of society, and reach certain classes of people in a unique way. We each have opportunities. The, the high schooler so often wants to just finish and get free, and then I can serve Jesus properly, but, but maybe you need to realize where you are, there is hundreds of kids that are stuck with you five days a week that you need to be preaching to. Maybe, maybe we're, we're a student and we feel, I just want to be uh, graduated and done and get my income back so I can be free and serve Jesus how I want. But maybe you need to look around at the dozens of thousands of people on campus with you as a mission field. You have opportunities to reach these people that in three years, four years will expire. Some of you need to realize that, that you're, you're a single adult or you're a, uh, you're, you're a young married or you, and you think, well, if I was, like we covered the last few weeks, if I was single, man, I'd be able to be a bit more missional. Wouldn't have to be home by 9 p.m. Or, or maybe you think in this way, if I was just married, I could be way more effective. Every single one of us, wherever you are, whatever status you have, start looking around at your life and realizing you have unique opportunities to preach Jesus Christ. Let them not escape from your hands while you wish for yourself a better way. So we all have a, uh, we've been called to the mission. We're given unique opportunities. And then when you, what you have to do then is consider the position that you're in. Not as chance, not as happenstance, not as karma, but God's providence and vocation. God has called you in the job you have with the amount of money you have, with the family you have, with maybe contacts with other people from your old religion, from your old church, whatever it is, God has called you as you are to be a missionary in that very unique mission field. 
So we have been called to a mission. We each have individual opportunities, and we need to consider where we are as a uh, vocation, as a calling, as a mission field. I'll use some biblical examples here because often Christians want to feel like, no, 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 no. We, we need to quit certain jobs, and there's, there's a Christian list of jobs you're allowed to have, and there's a non-Christian list of jobs you're not allowed to have, and there's a Christian way to invest and a non-Christian way. You know, you, there's so many rules. Well, we have examples of Lydia in Philippi, who was a very wealthy uh, 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 fabric uh, saleswoman or trader. It was her house that Paul and Barnabas, uh, sorry, Paul and, uh, uh, and Silas and Timothy, when they went to Philippi, they stayed in one of her granny flats because she had a, had a mansion. Never at any point of her repentance was a requirement. You have to not be rich anymore. Haven't you read the rich young ruler? Jesus said, you got to sell it all, give it to the poor, and you're poor, and you need rich people to give to you sort of like a Christian Amway. The poor Christians are always just relying on the latest rich convert to sell everything he's got and give it to everybody else. No, no, that's not how Christianity is, is to be. Well, we have the other example of Theophilus, rich political guy, a Greek man, to whom the book of Luke and Acts, which were originally one book, Luke-Acts, Luke wrote those books to Theophilus, dedicated to him because he funded the mission of Paul and Luke. Luke to write the, biblio- uh, the biography, Paul to go on mission. He kept his job of influence, politics, money, and funded the right things. He just funneled it correctly. We have other examples. We won't go through all of them. Uh, oh, we can also think of Sosthenes, who was actually in Corinth, one of the uh, 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 leaders of the um, synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. It, we don't have any, uh, any position where we see that, uh, sorry, any passage where we see Paul rebuking him and saying, now that you're converted, leave the synagogue. Paul himself frequented the synagogue to worship Yahweh in the person of Jesus Christ and preach as a traveling rabbi. So here's Sosthenes getting a paycheck for working at a Jewish synagogue, and it doesn't look like he was commanded to repent. Also, it says that uh, not a few of the leading women in Thessalonica, the political gals, they got saved. And nowhere do we see an explicit uh, command for repentance. We also see Cornelius in Acts uh, when he got saved, a Roman centurion on big money with lots of servants, huge uh, uh, mansion. This guy who, who was in the military, right? A lot of Christians think you get saved out of the military. Not necessarily so. There's a Christian way to be in the military, a non-Christian way to be in the military. Cornelius shows us apparently the call to Christ is not a call out of the military necessarily. So there's my proofs. Uh, Have that. None of them are here commanded. And so we see verse 20. What they were commanded was this. Each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. So you might feel maybe at this point, that there is no, ex- uh, no uh, uh, reason, no excuse ever for you then to, to change your job, uh, it, to move from a hostile environment to a non-hostile environment. There's never an excuse to leave your hostile marriage or allow a divorce in order to uh, pursue singleness or a Christian husband or wife. Uh, there's no excuse in any way. But of course, we've seen already uh, in, the, in the, the, the broader passages about marriage, we've covered that. But also Paul is going to say here, that while changing your status is not required, it is not prohibited either. He uses the example of a slave and a freed man. So he says in verse 21, Were you a slave or a bondservant when called? 
Do not be concerned about it. Isn't that a funny way to just lightly say, don't, don't worry about it. You're a slave. You get beaten. No income. It's all good. It's all good. Just drop it. <laughs> of course, he's more, more compassionate than that. He's just using this as an example. Are you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned. Don't stay up sleepless wondering whether you're a real Christian, whether God loves you simply because you're in the lowest strata of society. He says, though, in brackets, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So we see here that Paul's example of this reality, of this mindset, that you need to see and make all of your future decisions where you live, who you marry, whether you marry, what job you take, whether you study or take a trade, all of those decisions need to be filtered through the prism of my personal productivity for Jesus on the Great Commission. Paul even says, if you're a slave, you do not need to escape, although it could be beneficial. Just like Paul will say, you can get married or stay single according to what will be beneficial. And he means by that productivity on the Great Commission. I wonder how many Christians have, have really, when they, were, when they were buying a house, when they were applying for a university degree, when, when parents were helping their kids plan their life, when you were wondering about who to marry, did, did, did any part of your decision process come to, will this help me be more productive on the mission? Or, or is that simply what we've allocated to radicals, to the fanatics? They choose their postcode, their house, and all of their decisions according to whether or not it'll help them in the kingdom. What radicals? To Paul, it's basic Christianity. He says that <clears throat> we should avail, he says here, gain your freedom. Verse 21, he's saying that the point of what a slave should do is, if available, take the opportunity for freedom. Not because he's, he's simply focused on the, the personal experience of the, of the Christian, but because with freedom would come greater opportunity to serve Christ. You have to understand the life of the slave in the first century. Frequently beaten, if they had a, 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 a master like that, they were forbidden or at least limited from who they could marry. Of course, their religious observance of going to church was going to be hindered if they weren't able to get away and apply for leave and all of that. Sometimes there was, at least socially, there was structures in place that they turned a blind eye to, to rape and sexual abuse of slaves. So, of course, Paul's saying, if available, take the opportunity for freedom so that you can be regular on the Lord's day, so that you can serve, so that you can make money in order to give, so that you can disciple others. But, of course, if not, then God will still be glorified in and through this affliction. God will still provide for you all the mercy you need. One of the realities here is that <clears throat> slavery uh, was not, or ending slavery in the, in the Roman context, and of course we, we, we did a huge study on slavery if you go back into our Titus series, but Christ, where Christianity went, we would expect to see liberation move, movements, revolution, and revolt. Right? Slavery's wrong, the gospel goes somewhere social revolt. That may, maybe that's the mindset a lot of us would have. And yet particularly, to, pre, sorry, precisely to preserve the peace of society, 
God did not ordain that. Otherwise, revival would take with it revolution, which was against the purpose of, of Christ. And, and his, his kingdom is not won through the sword and social upheaval. Rather, uh, in fact, it's interesting as you read uh, historians, they say that the, the thing which brought the downfall of the slavery trade, of the slave trade in Rome, was the Lord's Supper. Using it, uh, using hyperbole there, but what they mean is when, when, when the apostles did not preach, slaves break your chains, revolt against your masters, get free. They, they didn't preach that, and you saw slaves be saved. Of course, 30% of the Roman Empire were slaves, another 30% were former slaves. You got 60% of your population, maybe that's the same in the church, and, and they're coming down and they're taking communion right across from them is their master or a master of some kind, you start sowing mental seeds in people and far and wide in a society that says to them, this slavery, this buying and selling of human beings is unjust, is unright. So we saw the end of slavery in Rome because of the Christians, though not through revolt. Well, the principle going on here is that there is an equality of Christianity Sorry, there is an equality of persons in Christianity. Regardless of your status, regardless of your income or job, your background, your power when you step outside these doors, you may command legions in the army, you step in here, you're on level fields with all of the rest of us. If the king were to walk in here, a queen, a prime minister, they come in here, they sit in a seat like the rest of us. They hear the word like the rest of us, and they bend their knee to King Jesus like the rest of us. Of course, in society, there's so many classes and strata around people. But at the foot of the cross, there is only one type of person. There is a sinner. There is only one type of, of financial situation before God. And that is debt, complete and utter infinite debt to his moral standard. There's only one kind of person that comes to the foot of the cross, and that's an enemy of God. And so those who receive the cross, those who receive the blood of Christ, who look to him in faith, there's only one type of those people. That is redeemed, forgiven sinners. Those who are righteous are only righteous by Christ's righteousness. They only receive that righteousness by open and empty-handed faith. There's no, there's no strata here. There's no classes or superstructure in the church like that. We are equals at the foot of the cross and equals as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And this reality, the, the, the universal application of the blood of Christ, the equality of the ground of the cross of Christ means that whether you are a slave or you are a free man, look at verse 22. He who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. There is all of these distinctions are removed. In fact, it's, it's interesting that he says, he's, when he says you're a freed man, he doesn't just mean you're a person who's free. A freed man was a title. It means formerly a slave. But if you were formerly a slave to somebody and they freed you, you become their freed man. You're not entirely free of obligations. You are still sort of expected on, on according to the contract that you work out. You're expected to look after them. You're expected to work for them a certain amount of hours a week. So there was still a, a working relationship. But if you had a, a former master 
who was honorable, who was influential in society, or who was kind. It was an honor to call yourself a freedman of so-and-so. Often the, the former slaves would put on their gravestone a freedman of whoever it was they were a freedman of. And so Paul is saying, you slaves, you can consider yourselves a freedman of the highest and kindest man in existence. You belong to Christ. And yet you who are free know that you are slaves of Christ. He reminds us, just as he reminded us back in chapter 6, he says, you were bought with a price. Verse 23, do not become slaves of men. If at all possible, right? He's focused on the opportunities you will have towards the mission. Just so don't enslave yourself again. Rather, utilize freedom for the mission of Jesus. You were bought at a price, so be active in making disciples. You were bought at a price, so don't consider your life decisions simply your own to make. You were bought at a price, so, so don't think of your own life as owable completely to somebody else. Utilize, prioritize freedom for the sake of great commission advancement. That is our mindset as Christians. Anything else fails to take what Paul says here seriously. Anything else fails to take the call of Jesus Christ for radical discipleship and the Great Commission, it takes that and it puts it to the wayside. Thanking Christ for freedom, then living for ourselves. So here we see, as in, by way of conclusion, we see that whatever position you're saved in, you are free to remain in. Repent of sins, prioritize the commandments of God, and utilize the position you're in as mission, as an opportunity, and as a calling for you to serve in. But, of course, if something will avail for you to be freer on the mission, freer to be involved in a good gospel Christian church, freer to make disciples, then avail yourself to that in order to gr more greatly glorify God in your life. Can you bow with me as we pray to close out what Paul has written to us here in the book of 1 Corinthians? Father God, the apostle said to us that whatever condition we were called in, let us there remain with God. And I thank you, God, that this is the, the comfort and the rebuke and the encouragement and the calling, that we are not remaining as we are, where we are, with the struggles we have, maybe, maybe tempted because we have a lot of opportunity and money, maybe tempted because we have very little and we, we are jealous of others. Whatever position we're in, we are to remain there with God. You meet us. You come to us wherever it is that we are. You come and you empower us by your spirit to live as faithful disciples with as little as we have or as much as we have. And I pray, God, that you would teach each of us the lesson of faithfulness so that we're not desiring more on our plate or despising you for how little we have or running from great opportunities because they just feel worldly. Or rather, Lord, give us the highest priority in our minds, winning of souls to your kingdom to glorify King Jesus. And Lord, whatever else you bring across our path, we will take it because you are our sovereign Lord and King. So Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with assurance that you would give to them the joy of their salvation, a real palpable sense of your love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I pray for those among us tonight who are struggling with sins and temptations 
that seem more powerful than we could possibly ever know. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would empower, would strengthen, would defend, that these Christians would be able to overcome their temptations and overcome their sin to the glory of Jesus. Pray, Lord, for those tonight who know that they are outside of Jesus or who are outside of Christ and don't know it, would you awaken them to the sense of their condemnation? Would you awaken them with a sense of dread at what awaits them after death? Would you bring them to Jesus Christ tonight to hold on to his atonement by faith, receive all of the mercy and grace that is in his blood, be cleansed and become one of us, these lowly sinners redeemed by grace called saints. We pray, Lord, all of this to your glory. And everybody said, Amen.